Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem. This is the Powers in Play, a monthly edition of a conversation with experts regarding the international arena. And uh, we have uh, with us retired or reserve Colonel Miri Eisen. The same goes for reserve Colonel Reuven Ben Shalom and reserve Colonel Dr. Iran Lerman, as well as former ambassador and deputy foreign minister, Danny Ayalon. A reserved captain. A, re- a reserved <laughs> captain of a ship or tanks, <laughs> tanks. Of, of tanks. Welcome, uh, all of you. In the old uh, Frank Sinatra song, Autumn in New York, he speaks uh, about love, but mingled with pain. And this seems an apt description of the annual ritual of the uh, United Nations General Assembly meeting in Manhattan where the heads of state, heads of government, uh, foreign ministers and other potentates descend on the glass house and speechify. They don't really do a lot. And we have seen it uh, last week in the one, I should say, almost impotent speeches of world leaders regarding the uh, problems of the near future, such as uh, drought, climate, um, COVID, uh, and uh, other epidemics. And all the while, they couldn't solve current problems, such as the uh, war in Ukraine and the uh, imminent danger of escalating into the nuclear domain for the first time since 1945. So, Miri Eisen, let me ask you, in the 77 years of the United Nations existence, we have grown used to the fact that even though the United States lost the monopoly on nuclear power, military nuclear power, which it had in 1945 when the UN was created, nevertheless, there was not really a feeling of danger Yes, there was the Cuban Missile Crisis, and there were other crises over Berlin, and the Cold War had uh, its low points. But for the last three decades or so, we believe that uh, this is all in the past, and that no sane leader would draw us back to the brink. If we are on the brink, is the United Nations the right organization to take care of it? The United Nations is relevant both today as it was in the past, but perhaps not for the nuclear issue. The United Nations as an organization is the only place where everybody comes to. That's not enough to actually have an impact on every country in the world, but I do think that there's an importance to having that kind of platform. You talked about the speechify. Speeches are important in today's world. They impact people. But here, Amir, 
in the description that you gave, I'm going to slightly change that. We've already had nuclear problems in the last 40 years that were post-World War II. We have India and Pakistan, and they can get to that brink of war all of the time, and they each have nuclear capabilities. We have North Korea, and so it's not just the Iranian issue. We've already been there. There is no alternative right now. So the question to me is, do you leave it if it doesn't do anything, or do you disband it even though it can't do anything? I say leave it at the moment, even if it isn't effective. Ambassador Ayalon, um, in one of your uh, first uh, tasks as a young foreign service officer, you were posted uh, to the uh, United Nations uh, headquarters or the Israeli uh, delegation to the uh, UNHQ in New York. And this is the early 1990s. Was that the time the UN started losing its innocence? Because uh, growing up in Israel in the 50s and 60s, the UN uh, had um, quite the uh, power of a brand, at least. And we, we saw in 1967, when the Secretary General Utant did nothing to avert the crisis, and he could have, that the UN is not what it was um, publicized uh, to be. But um, working inside the, uh, the beast, uh, what did you find out? Well, I found an organization which is corrupt morally, and perhaps otherwise as well. I don't want to go into it because uh, uh, this is not a court of law, and... Uh, Uh, I do not have evidence. Uh, and Israel did not play that game? Israel, uh, well, it played it um, in a way that is not, uh, I would say, the classic corruption. Classic corruption is played by many other countries, including permanent members of the Security Council. And I will not go there, but it is quite corrupt also uh, from a uh, corruption. Uh, Especially when the... Uh, Members are permanent, and not, exactly. not only the exactly. countries. And if they're superpowers and all that. Uh, well, Israel played the game in the sense that, you know, if we needed some a very important vote and we didn't want some uh, countries, mostly esoteric countries, to, to participate just to kind of a little bit leaven the playing fields for us so we will not be uh, 100 against 3, but uh, 97 against 5, Uh, that sometimes we would go to countries and we would try to ask them to uh, abstain or just disappear from uh, not going to the, uh, to, the, to the General Assembly. So yes, it is a game, but this is a legitimate, uh, I think, game. But I think you touched it uh, right there in 1967. I think this is where um, the UN uh, was one of the peaks of its uh, inefficiencies. Um, I would uh, add to that 1978-79, where they did not recognize the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. So you see an organization which is really defunct and which is really cannot get any, any things done, not politically, but you know what, even, even worse, not even when it comes to, uh, to the real problems of climate change and poverty and many other things, you see complete ineptitude, unfortunately. Dr. Lerman, um, you have a lot of experience in military intelligence um, at the Israeli National Security uh, staff. Um, when Israel looks at uh, such an organization, does it see um, only a risk or an opportunity too? Uh, 
recently, actually, there's been glimpses of opportunity uh, because Israel's uh, place in the UN agencies, UN operational agencies, uh, uh, has actually improved because Israel has things to offer in humanitarian aid, in uh, education, and etc. Um, and um, the disappointment that has been uh, the key attitude uh, since Ben-Gurion famously said, Um Shmum. Um, uh, um is the UN in um, Hebrew. Um in Hebrew, and uh, it was just basically... And Shmum is universally uh, understood. <laughs> I would translate uh, Um Shmum to the United Nothing. Um, the, it has been, nevertheless, I don't think there's ever been a serious uh, notion in Israel. Let's just get out and leave or get the Americans to leave. Uh, you hear, you read this from time to time in some heated uh, uh, journalists' dreams, but this is not a serious proposition. The UN is a very limited organization, but it still provides occasionally uh, anchors that we can use. Um, need to bear in mind, for example, the entire sanction system uh, on Iran in the previous decade was created by a series of, of UN resolutions. This is, was at the time when Russia and the United States could still agree on things. China, uh, we were instrumental uh, in Israel in persuading China to vote for UN Security Council Resolution 1929, which leveraged, which, which leveled very serious sanctions on Iran. So it's not a negligible organization. But um, once the world becomes uh, bipolar again, in, in all senses of the word, and uh, we go back to a situation where there's a zero-sum game, where one of the aggressors is a permanent member of the Security Council, so the Security Council is functionally disabled. Theoretically, they're not supposed to be there when, when there's a vote on their issues, but then the Chinese would deputize for them. Uh, uh, so it's tri tripolar, really. Tripolar, but uh, it is bipolar in the sense that Russia by now has increasingly made itself through this catastrophic decision into a future adjunct of Chinese ambitions. And in this world, uh, the UN, the key UN institution, the Security Council, is disabled. Let, let me ask you, Reuven, uh, you're um, an Air Force pilot uh, by uh, career, but you also have a lot of experience in liaison with foreign military forces. And Israel, ever since 1957, right after the Sinai-Suez campaign, when Uh, Canadian Foreign Minister Lester Pearson came up uh, with UNIF, with United Nations Emergency Force. I always love that name. UNIF. Because it's the first one, United Nations Emergency Force. Right, and, right. and it was um, a sort of a buffer, even if a sham buffer, between Egypt and Israel, perhaps as a pretext for Egyptian leaders to their population. Why don't they attack Israel again? Because then we will have uh, to tangle with the UN. And you, of course, um, uh, have experience with uh, UNIFIL in Lebanon and Andov um, on the Golan Heights. And all of these uh, forces are composed of national contingencies or um, units. So 
how does the Israeli relation with a UN force, how is it different than the bilateral relations with the various countries um, whose contingents contribute to the force? Mm-hmm. Well, first, it's a very difficult profession because you have to learn a lot of acronyms. <laughs> another thing I would say that military is relatively easy to these aspects is in the military you have an enemy, you have an objective, and usually the objective is to kill the enemy. And diplomacy is much more difficult. And here there is a complexity. It's also, I think, a cultural one because for Israelis, I think our natural tendency is to look at UNIFIL, for instance, in Lebanon and say, ah, what are they doing? They didn't disarm Hezbollah. You know, what good are they in a way that relates to all our discussion here? Yeah, the UN is a failure. But when one of these forces is threatened, as for instance, budget or MFO, which is not, MFO is not a UN organization. Multinational National force, force and observers. observers. In a way, it's like a private. This is, uh, this is in the Sinai, has been there for the last 40 years. And this is a sort of a bypass because Israel didn't want the, um, the Soviets right. at the time to have a veto power over it. That's right. But what I'm saying is, bottom line, we're surrounded by all these peacekeeping forces. By the way, not peace building, not peacemaking, peace uh, observers. Again, what is the good of observing? Yet, when there is a threat to one, someone's budget or they're thinking of reducing a force, we go nuts. Why? Because we understand the importance that they are a buffer, they are on the ground. The fact that you have someone to talk to, which again relates to the whole idea of the UN. What do we want? Not to have a place to talk, only fight and kill. Excellent, we have a building we can sit down and talk. Now, as far as relations with these organizations, complex, we do it in all directions, being Israeli sometimes in creative ways. Certainly there's a bilateral, bilateral mechanism, but a lot to the UN, and it's understanding the mechanisms. It's many times important to understand uh, even Article 7 of the UN Charter to understand, you know, what's chapter the reasoning? Chapter, chapter 7, I'm sorry. The reasoning behind it, what are they allowed to do? What can they do? What can they not do? But bottom line, I think these are good stabilizing forces. Always we would want to have more. And as far as our relations with them, it's always supportive, full communication, dialogue. Many times, by the way, they are the only avenue that we can talk to, to the party that they're operating in, like in Lebanon. One of the interesting aspects that I always found with the UN forces and MFO, think about it, Lebanese, Syria, Egypt. But Lebanese, they're entirely in Lebanon. Syria, they're on both sides of the armistice line. And when it comes to the Egyptian border, at the end, you said the word buffer. And at the end, for us, they define our outer lines. And so when we look at these international forces, some of them UN, some of them international, they help domestically give us a clear-cut line of what our outer lines are. And that helps us, not just at the rest of the world. And I think of that as a strong thing. When you said we want them to be there, yes, they actually help us give a definition on the two northern borders. We actually don't have borders. Those are armistice lines. And the creation of a United Nations international force makes it more you know, viable. There's something physically there. 
when it comes to the Lebanese one, I find it fascinating because there are lots of forces in there, Muslim forces, you know, from all around the world. And you can have both a bilateral kind of relationship with countries that you have relations with otherwise, but we don't have relations with Indonesia, and yet they're in UNIFIL. Same goes for Malaysia, and yet they're in UNIFIL. Very interesting. And by the way, uh, we had um, UN observers uh, ever since 1948 or 49 under ANSO, the Truth Supervision Organization, and they too were um, on the boundary, the demilitarized zone um, mm. uh, between Israel uh, and Syria, even before the uh, Six-Day War. They Around, keep, and they keep the nicest piece of real estate in Jerusalem. And, and um, <laughs> yes. Used to be government and, house. And on the Sea of Galilee, they also have mm. a nice villa there. I, I want to be very clear. I, I, I agree that it is not a presence we object to. However, it is also very important to emphasize that Israel cannot possibly rely on a UN presence for security security purposes. Uh, Our best and longest and and, and best kept and most quiet border is with Jordan, where except for the occasional foray of an ANSO officer for shopping in Amman or vice versa, they don't have uh, any any relevance. Whereas in Lebanon, there you have 15,000 uh, paid UN troops on the ground, and they have not reduced Hezbollah's arsenal by one rocket, and have not made a single uh, um, effort since six Spanish peacekeepers were murdered by Hezbollah. They've never made any effort to apprehend the flow or, or stop the flow of arms. So it, they, if anyone comes to us and says, well, you can make certain territorial concessions, but we'll bring you a UN force to protect you, forget about it. Danny, um, there are pressures, and uh, Secretary of State Blinken uh, alluded uh, to that recently, by other uh, countries such as India or Brazil to join the uh, ranks of the permanent members of the United Nations, or at least have a uh, semi-permanent status uh, there. What uh, is Israel's position on that? Oh, (laughs) we're not very uh, favorable to that, because at the end of the day, we see that when uh, you increase the numbers, it's at our uh, disadvantage. Um, You see, and then what you... Our main problem is not with the Security Council because we have the American and the veto power. Our problem is at the General Assembly, where, you know, overwhelmingly they vote against us all the time because of the automatic... But it's non-binding. But it's non-binding, exactly. However, it does carry um, on, you know, when it comes to the public diplomacy uh, status, positioning. I I maintain that the UN, General Assembly, is the main, I would say, delegitimizer of the state of Israel. Uh, because people, you know, who are not in the know, and I don't blame them, you know, they think, well, the UN is a neutral, is a good organization. UN says Israel is bad, you know, it must be bad. And they don't go into the intricacies. So if you bring more countries, I mean, from Israel's perspective, to the Security Council, then what you do is you dilute the um, the, the power of the United States, although it has the, 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 the veto, but still, you will have the discussions, you know, before the vote, there is a big debate, and you have all other other countries to, to talk, they will, um, I mean, it's, it's quite clear for us that they will not be in our favor. But I don't think this is very realistic, because 
their own, um, I would say, competition within the regions, whether it's, you know, in Africa, it's South Africa uh, against Egypt. In Asia, it's Pakistan and, uh, and India. In Latin America, it's Brazil and Argentina. These talks, I remember since I was there in 1993, and it has not gone anywhere, and I don't think it will now. Ruben, let, let me go back for a second uh, to the uh, Israeli attitude towards the uh, UN or, or uh, multinational uh, forces. Um, who is serving there, not uh, on the national level, but who uh, among the troops wants to go there? There's no fighting. It's uh, relatively uh, easy. It's, um, it's a paid uh, trip of uh, the uh, Middle East. Um, in the uh, U.S. armed forces, uh, there has been some resistance uh, in not only recent years, but ever since uh, Donald Rumsfeld was Secretary of Defense, um, to the positioning of combat-ready troops needed elsewhere. So National Guard units from various states are being sent. What's their professional level? Hmm. Interesting. But I asked some of them, by the way, and I was surprised to see that many of them uh, find an internal drive that has to do with values. I have friends that are, you know, that served in the past in Lebanon. Decades later, once in a while, they would they'll post on Facebook photos from Lebanon, you know, showing the good they did to the world and to the region, and we have to respect that. And I think we all do it in whatever we do, right? Um, so, so, yes, I think many of them, when they come, they think, yeah, we are going to a place of conflict. Many times peacekeeping forces is after the conflict and after the, the, the parties uh, you know, stopped or ceased of hostilities. And now they feel like they have an important, critical mission and they're maintaining peace on the ground. Now, certainly people in, you know, in UNIFIL understand the complexities now, you know, and they see that they're not running after Hezbollah because that's not their charter. But there is that part. Another element, I'll say, many of these countries simply send soldiers, they get their orders. By the way, even my American friends, how do they get positioned? Not like in Israel, where you talk to your commander and he says, yeah, I'll look in. You get a letter, you open it up, you see where you're stationed, right? So many countries, they're just sent here. That's your job. In a way, some of these countries, they have tasks and jobs in complicated and dangerous places that in a way, oh, excellent. Mountains of Lebanon, peace and quiet, peacekeeping forces, blue hat. So I'm saying it's, it's a mix of all of this Asking about their professional level, I think, is a mistake, because remember, we're not talking about elite commandos with some kind of special mission, but a peacekeeping mission very defined to observe, to monitor, to, disc to dis discourse, and at least the people that I meet are excellent. It's like extras in a war film. <laughs> Again, it's not the kind of role, okay? So uh, f I have no complaints from, from that perspective. Okay? Miri, you wanted to add uh, to that or, or any other subject? When we look at United Nations troops, I think we have the sense on the one hand of they do absolutely nothing. And on the other hand, again, I say it's something very visual, like the United Nations. It's something which in its own way gives a visual aspect to a line. And I think that we underestimate what the visual does. It gives a sense of calm. It's not about their being the ones who make peace, but by the fact that they're there. And, and, and in that sense, I mean, I'm worried sometimes because there are lots of UN peacekeeping forces worldwide. And the ones that are in the Middle East, on Israeli borders, specifically, especially the Lebanon, Syria, or the MFO, not exactly UN contingency, they do have an 
a symbolic aspect of being there. And by the way, there are uh, powers, uh, one could say mid-sized powers like Sweden, who take pride in their participation mm -hmm. in uh, UN peacekeeping missions. And uh, because they did not uh, participate in wars in recent uh, decades or even centuries, this is um, their main uh, claim to fame. I mean, Even some countries situation? use yes. it as a, uh, an addition to their national income. Countries like uh, Fiji, yes. uh, you know, they would send... Two-thirds of the, the Fijian military the was on our borders. Mm -hmm. So it's a sort of a foreign legion. Iran, mm -hmm. um, let me um, point um, to another aspect of the UN Charter and the United Nations as an organization. One of the aspirations um, that its founders had in, in San Francisco in 1945 um, was to stop forest fires. Yes, countries uh, from time immemorial uh, have wars. They have disputes with their neighbors, but what is important is to cut it, to, to have a fire break so that it does not spread to other countries and then other regions. And we saw that when the uh, Soviets invaded Afghanistan, it did not spread and the United Nations did nothing, of course, because of the Soviet veto too. And when the uh, Russians fought um, in Chechnya or against Georgia, that too. But this time, 2022, the Ukraine, apparently it's different because of Western help to Ukraine which is what uh, Vladimir Putin last week uh, claimed was the main reason for a possible escalation. What can the United Nations do about it? Not much. Um, interestingly, um, enough countries in the General Assembly were willing to vote with the West to condemn the Russian, though, although quite a number of uh, um, African and Asian countries, countries that were hesitate, hesitated. And of course, Central Asians are, find themselves in a bind. But nevertheless, there was a majority vote in the General Assembly condemning uh, the invasion. The Security Council is obviously disabled, and uh, none of the actions taken uh, in support of Ukraine by the West have been taken under Chapter 7 as they should have been. Uh, theoretically, there should have been a Chapter 7 situation, um, breaches of the peace, kind of. But the kind of response that the international community gave effectively to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in 1990, uh, you mentioned the early 90s. The early 90s are the, actually the short golden age of UN authorized action. Perhaps because at the time, because the Russia States was was, exactly. was willing to work with under Gorbachev and then under Yeltsin was uh, and even in Bosnia, not yes, only uh, in Iraq, uh, up yeah. to a point, yes. And there, there were there were a series uh, of, of of serious um, authorizing uh, resolutions by the by the Security Council. These days are are over, and uh, what we are seeing is the reemergence of two organizing concepts that seem to be in decline. One is NATO and the idea that the West, writ large, uh, should militarily uh, take care of its own needs and interests and the uh, rapid buildup of military forces in Europe, which by the way reflects also on Israel because we are very much uh, being asked to, to see what we can provide. 
Um, the second is this very vague idea that uh, may uh, pick up momentum of a um, collective organization of the democracies. It's very interesting where you're going right now, because in the description itself, the 1990s worked because Russia was out of the game and nobody was there to oppose. But the United Nations was established in 1945. It worked during the 50s and 60s and quite effectively and sometimes when there were absolutely the Cold War in between the two. So I'm just saying in that sense, as we look at it, I don't think it only works when there's only the one dominant player. At the end, it's a question of how we look at things. And yes, I'm against what Russia's doing in Ukraine. Here I am on that side of the platform. But that doesn't mean that the United Nations has to be inept. There were lots of wars going along then between the different sides. Much depends on how China defines its attitude. I was in uh, Beijing some years ago, and I was very much surprised to see a huge poster of a Chinese soldier with a blue helmet. Mm-hmm. Now, China... I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Were in Africa? Um, in some, uh, they didn't say, it didn't say where. In or if it did, it was in... Uh, <laughs> and make, it, it make was no mistake, that's also part of promoting their own interests. No, yes. They, 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 prob- they probably produced for, the helmets. For, <laughs> <laughs> for them, clearly, um, because they seek a peaceful ascent in the world order, their membership of the Security Council and the UN as an institution works in their favor. And we, bear, we have to bear in mind, this is the one great power in modern history that actually fought against the UN. Ukraine, the, the, uh, the Korean War, the Korean War was a nominally a war that the UN conducted Police against, action. against <laughs> first North Korea and then against China itself. Um, so uh, the transformation is significant. Will they sustain an attitude which looks positively upon the UN? Or will they share the increasingly acerbic Russian view of the UN as a, a, an American uh, arena? Um, that will well, determine where we would go. American arena. Uh, Danny Ayalon, um, regarding the face of the organization, at one time, we mentioned Uthan, but at one time, the uh, personality of the Secretary General was important in world affairs. Uh, the, tra- the first one, Trigvildi, and then uh, Doug Hammerschild. But in recent years, and we had the shameful episode of uh, Kurt Waldheim, but in recent years, um, these are not very important uh, people. And uh, if you ask the men um, in the street in Calcutta, or even in Tel Aviv, uh, who Guterres uh, may be, uh, perhaps one in a thousand uh, would guess that it is not the um, uh, midfielder in the uh, soccer team of Portugal. So how important are the Secretary General and the Under Secretary Generals uh, for political affairs and, and other key people in the organization? Well, they carry some weight, but it's only uh, if they have their own personal prestige and experience. Uh, if you had somebody like D- Doug Hammerschild or Trig Valley, or even I would say Boutrous Rally to mm-hmm. a lesser extent, you know, who, who did something? You know, there were foreign ministers, some were, you know, uh, heads of states. So certainly they had the way also to talk to other heads of states with some authority. I think there was a digression with the appointment of uh, Kofi Annan. Kofi Annan was a bureaucrat. Uh, He was from Ghana. He rose up in the ranks of the United Nations 
and he was not up, you know, I mean, his power, stature. Yeah, his stature was not as a as a former head of state or even foreign minister. So there was a little digression from from the time, and we see at the end of the day, it's all about the member states and especially the the powerful five. They are the ones who can make or break. So when we saw, as we mentioned here, during the 90s, we saw some achievements. It's only because U.S. and Russia could really get together and make some decisions. Without that, there was nothing. You know, I can go even back to the 80s, where the U.N. was not instrumental in bringing down uh, the uh, tensions from the old the, uh, the Cold War or even from the nuclear um, proliferation. If we look at START and SALT, you know, this... Uh, um, the treaties between, treaties between the, the U.S. and... Uh, it was uh, Gorbachev and Reagan and, or Gorbachev and, uh, Bush. And, and Bush that did it. The U.N. had nothing to do with it, although they have the first commission, as you know, in the U.N., which is dealing with the uh, uh, non-proliferation. And, of course, they have the uh, um, UAEA. Nothing to do with that. It all was bilateral. But it's not either or. It's not either or, but we have to put it in proportion. The UN, it's good that it's there. You know, I was always uh, very derogatory about the UN. Uh, Israel, of course, doesn't get its fair share of the UN, but it's it's very one, um, you know, dimensional. Because Israel, as much as we disparage the UN, we continue, I mean, we cling to the Article 55 of the Charter of Self-Defense, and we invoke it every time Mm -hmm. we have to go into an operation, whether it's in Gaza or anywhere else. Uh, Even, even... uh, We should should be frank about this. The happiest day in the history of the Jewish people was actually not the Declaration of Independence, which came in the midst of battle already, but the 29th of November, 47. If you read Amos Oz in uh, Love and Darkness, how his father... uh, took him to celebrate. Uh, this, this is one of the most... But of course, Ben-Gurion said that uh, while everybody rejoiced, he knew what was coming uh, regarding sure the war. And by the way, that uh, that vote, uh, the, on, uh, the resolution 181, the petition resolution, uh, one is not certain that uh, it was totally free of uh, some under, underhand... I go back to your first question about my experience, how you persuade countries to vote one way or another. I want to relate in general to the UN. Uh, the, the big problem here is why is it so uh, shameful or you said corrupt? Uh, why is it a disgrace sometimes? Why is it a failure? Because that's that's us. That's how humans are. That's all it is, right? It's just where we're getting together. Uh, so we're doing shameful things to the world. We're not very successful in making the world a better place. So what do we expect? Another thing is that the UN uh, fundamentally has to be a place where it can promote things in consensus, right? So if it's climate change or fighting a pandemic or uh, regulating uh, international civil aviation. These are things that if everyone agrees, we can promote. So this is why they will never be able to promote anything that has to do with security because security are two parties that are clashing. These two parties are in the UN and they're clashing. What do we expect? The UN now to get together and have some kind of consensus? Or to be the high court of justice, which is even scarier. So, So it doesn't make any sense. So I'm saying security, there's no way. The whole issue of human rights theoretically should have been a serious element of the UN. That is probably the biggest disgrace of the UN. Shameful disgrace. Now, remember always that when we talk about the UN, we have to separate between Israelis talking about the UN, and here we're much more sentimental and everything, and they're horrible to us and and all that, and as a citizen of the world. And as a citizen of the world, I would want many other things. All I would want to say here is that many times it doesn't harm us. It insults us. It doesn't harm us. It perpetuates violence. 
it, it, it empowers terrorists. So that, that's shameful. But it's important to, to note that um, it is not the populations, the citizens of the world, who are represented there, not an Israeli, an American, uh, an Egyptian. Right. These are countries. And uh, in the General Assembly, uh, a billion and a half Indians have uh, the same weight as uh, 9.5 uh, million Israelis. Or oh, 7,000 citizens of Nauru. Well, Nauru is important. Um, maybe, maybe during the no, no. Maybe during uh, the Third World War, we'll all emigrate uh, <laughs> to the paradise uh, in the Pacific. They will not be washed out because exactly. of climate change by the sea. That's that's later. Yeah. Uh, now um, we are all um, uh, veteran travelers to the United States. And uh, there is um, a perennial debate about should the United States host the United Nations? Of course, there are other agencies in Vienna, in Geneva, in The Hague, as you mentioned, the, the ICC. But um, it's a two-edged sword. The United States, of course, uh, has some advantage by hosting the UN, but each time um, some villain quote-unquote, uh, comes, comes to town, there are calls to, to bar um, uh, the travel. So does the world gain by having the uh, UN um, on, on the shores of Turtle Bay in Manhattan? I have a, a view about this which goes back to the question, why don't we trash the UN altogether? Uh, because we wanted to move to Jerusalem. Well, the point is oh, this. Because bureaucrats is, like to travel to New York. That's, that's a good reason, too. But ultimately, uh, UN, the UN as an institution and American leadership are both the results of the outcome of 1945. 1945 is the watershed. It is still the defining moment of modern history the end of World War II, the institutional structures that emerge as a result. Modernity. I recently wrote a piece about uh, Biden trying to go back to modernity as opposed to his two predecessors who went towards post-modernity. The UN, in that sense, is part of this modern disposition, the modern post-war order. We still say post-war in the sense of post-45. And in that sense, I think it's important that they, uh, the, the U.S. founded the U.N., initiated its creation in San Francisco. It was the, uh, Roosevelt's vision and Truman's operations that created it. And in that sense, it should remain there. You don't want to go anywhere else. Now, the most important, most severe crisis uh, in the world today is the uh, Russian uh, war in uh, Ukraine. Um, does any of you uh, four see any uh, prospect of some agreement between Putin and Zelensky which will get the imprimatur of the United Nations? Perhaps only um, to put um, its brand of, of world authority behind what the bilateral negotiations will bring. Miri. The bilateral is what's going to be the one that's going to define. There's importance to how the world looks at whatever the bilateral is. At the end, I actually think that there's a lot of rhetoric that has to do with it, meaning if both Putin and Zelensky agree on something, 
then how is the world going to look at that? Are we going to say one side caved or the other side caved? There's a lot that has to do with the perception of what they arrive at. But I see them as the ones who have to arrive at it as hard as that sounds. Well, not only do I think that that will never happen, but it will be the other extreme. It will be turning a blind eye to everything that's happening there to the point that if the president of Russia now is speaking of a nuclear war, the UN doesn't get up and tell him what, you know, what the UN thinks. Everyone's just going to continue dealing with their own thing, promoting their own interest. Nothing's going to happen. At the end, the UN will pick up the scraps and maybe there will be some kind of UN entity that has to do with some, something along the way, but not now. Well, clearly, in my mind, uh, Putin is raising the ante with this uh, illusion or, or to, uh, to alluding to the... Um, to to, to, to the all, all the tools in his arsenal. And raising and all that. I think maybe, maybe, in a way, it's a good sign where he's prepared to climb down the tree. And for that, maybe the UN first... I mean, the UN is the only maybe uh, organization that can put on the table some kind of a draft, uh, which, you know, Russia will not accept something from the United States or, or the Western or NATO. So maybe, maybe that is a sign that we're going into some kind of a settlement. Yeah. Traditionally, the institutional structure for attempts to resolve the Ukrainian crisis has been the OSCE via the Minsk process. But the Both o- of them European. Yeah, yeah, the organization, well, European, including yes. Russia and the, uh, the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe. But there's, by now, I think it's a dead body. Uh, it is, uh, the Russians don't trust any, any of the other members. Uh, so the UN could come in on a ceasefire or an interim agreement. I doubt if the UN can generate a solution that involves territorial concessions on either side, because that would breach uh, its own conceptual framework. We spared ourselves uh, the debate regarding the United Nations and the prospects for peace in the Middle East. We are going to save that for another program. Uh, for the time being, Powers in play. Thank you all. Reuven Ben Shalom, Biri Eisen, Eran Lerman, and Danny Ayalon. And uh, we will be back uh, with another edition of Powers in Play next month. Shalom from Jerusalem. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.